0: are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit HarvestBrampton.ca. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father God, we come to you in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by your Spirit. We come to you right now because you have promised to never leave our side, to always be with us, to never forsake us, that nothing can separate us from your amazing love. And so God, I pray right now that as we open your word to, to speak about a very uh, important uh, theme, to, to talk about a topic that that all of us will will face at, at one point or another, if not on a daily basis, God, I pray that you would help us, I pray that you would uh, speak to us and 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 challenge us from your word. Lord, I pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We'll open up your Bibles to Psalm 38. The ushers will be handing out Bibles to people who need a copy of God's Word to be able to follow along. Psalm 38. Today's message is about something that everyone identifies. In fact, it's something that really the most beautiful and memorable works of literature in the English language center in on this one particular theme. It's, it's actually this one thing that if you are lacking it, that's actually a telltale sign that you are a, a sociopath or, or a psychopath. It's, it's, the issue is guilt. Uh, Shakespeare's most well-known plays, I mean, Hamlet was all about trying to catch a murderer in his guilt, experiencing guilt. Macbeth was all about, Macbeth wrestling with guilt. So this is something that every single human being experiences and deals with. And because the Bible is God's Word and because the Bible speaks to human experience, the Bible, of course, will address this very important topic. How should we respond when we experience guilt? The title for today's message is, Over My Head. That's a line right from Psalm uh, 38 where he is so overwhelmed with the guilt of his sin. That he doesn't know what to do. And and what we're going to see in today's message is that there is good guilt and there is bad guilt. There is, a, there is a certain kind of guilt that we can feel, a guilt that actually comes from God. It's good guilt that guides us to God. That's what Psalm 38 is about. But we also, as we read Psalm 38, we also need to keep in the back of our mind that there's such a thing as bad guilt. You see, good guilt works at conviction. to to convince us that we've done something wrong so that we'll change. But bad guilt doesn't work at conviction, it works at condemnation. Good guilt is designed to actually help us to change our ways. If we've turned away from God, good guilt helps us turn towards him, but bad guilt doesn't help us, it harms us. And it tries to convince us that God doesn't want us anymore because we're so guilty. And so today we're gonna to see, we're gonna see the the, the the sociological effects of guilt, the, the relational effects of guilt, the, the physical effects of guilt, and then the spiritual solution to guilt. So in this incredible psalm, as, as we've been reading and reflecting on it throughout the course of this series or the, this, this um, service, we're going to see three things that, that really come to the surface as we look at this topic of guilt from Psalm. Thirty-eight. The psalm begins by saying that it's a psalm of David. That means it was written for, about, or by David. And then it says, for the memorial offering. That, that phrase means to, to cause to remember. If you have a, a King James Version of the Bible, it says to bring to remembrance. This is... The psalmist is asking God to to remember them as they've wandered so far away from him. Or it could be a psalm where they're trying to remember a season in their life where they wandered from God and experienced his mercy. It begins by saying, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness, in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. As we look at this topic of guilt and how God actually uses guilt to cause us to turn away from our sin and to turn away from him, here's the first thing that that, that happens in our lives. When we choose to sin and when we experience guilt over our sin, here's something that the psalmist is experiencing. Here's something that I've experienced. I wonder if you've experienced it too. That when we feel guilty, we experience affliction in our bodies and in our souls affliction that's physical it's in our body and it's also spiritual in our souls if you look at verse 3 that I that I just read it says there's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation there's no health in my bones he's talking about our physical flesh and blood our bones and he gives the answer at the end of verse 3 because of my sin you see sin is breaking away from God's good plan but here's the thing God's good plan is bigger than just us in our lives. God's big plan involves the whole universe. It involves the physical world around us. And so when we choose to sin, when we break off that relationship with God, it not only affects us spiritually and how we relate to God, it actually affects us physically as well. That that when we feel those guilty feelings, you can feel it in your stomach, your heart beats a little faster. All of that is described right here in Psalm 38. But there's a purpose, if you you look at, go back to verse one, it says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. The psalmist knows he's done something wrong. He knows it's because of his sin. He's crying out to God for, for mercy. But verse 2 says, for your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. You see, God shoots the arrows of suffering at us to wake us up, to make us aware that we have sinned. It's actually a mercy that he brings about this pain. He, he, He brings about this affliction so that we would be made aware so that we don't hurt ourselves anymore by continuing along a destructive path beloved ones it's so important that we understand the difference between good guilt and bad guilt can you think of another place in the bible where it talks about arrows it's not God that's shooting the arrows isn't it, it? it's Ephesians chapter 6 the fiery darts of the enemy, that's why we need the shield of faith why? Because God may shoot an arrow of pain to show us, whoa, I, I've been sinning, and, and I need to stop doing this, and I need to repent, and I need to turn to the Lord. But right along with that, Satan's going to shoot some arrows at us as well. Not arrows of conviction, but arrows of condemnation. Arrows that are saying, you've gone too far. It's too late. You've messed up too bad. God doesn't want you anymore. That's why we need the shield of faith to say, no, no, God is using this guilt to draw me back to him, not to draw me away from him. So the psalmist is experiencing this this affliction in his body. He's actually physically sick, and he he, he sees the root cause of his physical sickness to be his own sinful choices. If you look at verse 5, it says, My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness I am utterly bowed down and prostrate all the day I go about mourning for my sides are filled with burning and there is no soundness that means no health in my flesh I am feeble and crushed I groan because of the tumult of my heart now I want to I want to clear something up that's very very important Because there's a lot of confusion about the relationship between our sin and sickness. There's actually a lot of false teaching, uh, even in our city, about the relationship between being sick and falling into sin. Listen, not all sickness is a result of sin, and not all sin results in sickness. Do you remember in John chapter 9 when Jesus and his disciples, they sort of stumble upon this guy that was born blind? And the disciples ask the question, Jesus, who who sinned? Whose fault is this? Was it the parents or was it it him? Is that the reason why he's blind? And Jesus said, it's neither. Sometimes sickness comes as a result of sin. Sometimes sickness comes as a result of God's plan. God had a plan for that man who was born blind to demonstrate the glory of God of God. So if you're here today and you're suffering, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're suffering because you're a sinner. If you're here today and you're healthy, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're a perfect person and that God is somehow protecting you because of your goodness. No, we live in a broken world and sickness comes because of our sin and sickness comes just because, because it's part of God's Plan. So when we experience guilt, we experience this affliction in our soul. Just, just even think about the different ways that we sin. I mean, some of the really overt ways. I mean, I mean uh, substance abuse leads to bad trips and hangovers. There, there, is, a, there is an anguish in the body that, that comes as a result. A sexual sin results in in not not just just a sexually transmitted disease, but a feeling of emptiness and brokenness, feeling like you're crushed. You see, there's There's hormones in our body. There's the way that our brain works. We weren't designed to sin. And so when we do sin, there's a breakdown physically that happens. Sometimes it's manifested in a serious illness. Sometimes it's just a headache. Sometimes it's just a sense of sluggishness. But we are spiritual beings and we are physical beings. And we can't differentiate. We, We can't, we can't, we can differentiate, but we can't separate the two. They're interrelated. And listen, oftentimes God is using those things, the natural consequences of your sin, your, the emotional and physical reverberations of, of what you did. He uses those things as arrows to capture your attention, He uses it as good guilt to guide you back to God. And so this psalmist is experiencing all of these things. And notice how he is turning to God. Look at verse 9. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. He knows that God is omniscient. He knows that God saw all of his sin. He knows that God now sees all of his groaning and the misery that he finds himself in. Verse 10. My heart throbs. My strength fails me. And the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. He's experiencing this physical difficulty, affliction in his soul and in his body. But not only that, if you look at verse uh, 11, it says, My friends and my companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest of kin stand far off. Not only do we have affliction in our bodies and souls, loved ones, we also experience tension in our relationships tension in our relationships. You see, you'll never truly understand sin until you understand that sin is fundamentally relational. It's not just about breaking rules. It's about rebelling against the God who created the universe and who loves you and who gave you everything that you have. It's fundamentally relational. And so, When there's a breakdown in our relationship with God, the natural consequence is that our other relationships start to break down with our family and our friends. And so that's why this person, who's experiencing the consequences of their sin, it says that their friends and their companions stand aloof. And then in in, in just a great example of the beauty of Hebrew poetry, the next line says, my nearest of kin, stand far off. The person who's supposed to be so near, so close, almost inseparable, is now distancing themselves from me. The way the word near and far is used there is just such an example of a poetic precision and brilliance in the Word of God. There's this tension in his relationships. Why do people distance themselves? Now, Psalm 38 is, is we're going to see as we continue to study it, it's multi-layered. This person knows they're a sinner, and they're also sick. Now, they see a relationship between those two things. Sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't. But why do friends distance themselves when someone is sick or when someone is caught in some heinous sin? Let's talk first off about the, the sick person. Why would someone stand aloof? Well, maybe it was a threat of, well, maybe I'll catch what they have. They, they, it was, it was very, um, uh, not a very developed medical system at the time when this psalm was being written. Maybe they were afraid that, that, that the illness was, was contagious. Well, why do we sometimes, unfortunately, rather than going to people in their time of need, why do we sometimes stand aloof? I know I've been guilty of that before. I know sometimes it's the fear of of not knowing what to say. It's like, come on, Ted, you're a preacher. You you talk for 45 minutes straight. How do you not know what to say? Well, sometimes I really am afraid of that. Sometimes it's a lot easier to talk to a whole group of people than it is to talk one-on-one with a person who's really legitimately suffering, not not knowing what, what, what to say, or, or afraid of saying the wrong thing, just giving in to saying some sort of cliched thing or, or, or upsetting the other person. So fear so often stops us from doing the right thing, going to people in their illness, seeking to try to help them. And what about, what about when someone is caught in a, a, a grievous a sin, well, sometimes people stand aloof first and foremost because they're kind of repulsed by what that person has done. Sometimes they need to stand aloof because they've actually been hurt by the sinful behavior that that person did. I mean, if we give our lives to things like anger and to deception or greed or lust, you're going to end up hurting some people along the way. And the people who are once close to you are Standing aloof because of, really, for self-preservation. Listen, I've never been horribly sick, but I've definitely sinned horribly. And I've experienced the, I've experienced the reality of some people standing kind of aloof, kind of repulsed by, by what I had done or what I had become. But listen, I can tell you there were so many people who came so close And they were so used by God in that moment by not leaving me alone. Just as Jameson led us to say, it's not just you calling to the Lord. No, we're going to call out to the Lord about this. And as I was reading Psalm 38, as I was was reflecting on my own experience and thinking about our own church, I just wrote down, may this verse never be quoted by a member of our church family." May may this never be the experience of someone who's caught in some sort of habitual sin or did something that they t- totally regret. May it never be said of someone who is sick and, and suffering. May they never say, my friends and companions stand aloof from me and my nearest of kin stand off. May we be a church that goes to people in their time of need. May we be a a church that loves people the way that God loves us, in our sin, in our suffering, comes to us. So this person is experiencing uh, isolation, alienation, because of their sin, because of their suffering. So they're all alone. They're, They're abandoned. But the truth is, they're not by themselves. They should be surrounded by family, but instead they're actually surrounded by their enemies. And another layer of this beautiful psalm is added in verse 12. Those who seek my life lay their snares, and those who seek my heart speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. And so you've got the layer of sin, and then the layer of suffering and sickness, and then another layer of being added here is enemies trying to persecute and harm this person, trying to kick them when they're down. They're already feeling guilty, they're suffering from this illness, they're down in the dumps, and and these people who are out to get them are trying to pour salt on the wound, they're trying to make it worse, they're trying to add insult to injury. And so, loved ones, we need to understand this, that that when we give in to sin, one of the consequences of sin is that it gives our enemies, and we we become vulnerable to their accusation and their attack, and our main enemy is Satan, and he's ready with those arrows to fire them at us. He's ready to discourage us. He's, He's ready to try to come after us in these moments, And so, loved ones, we need to understand, God uses these circumstances in our lives. This is good guilt to guide us to God. If you're experiencing relational tension right now, if your enemies seem to really be taking issue with you, if your friends and family are kind of standing aloof from you and you don't feel as close to people as you once did, maybe it's time for you to do a serious evaluation of where you're standing in your relationship with God and how... How is your belief in God reflected in your behavior? Because God might be using that circumstance, that relational tension to draw you back to him, to allow you to see the natural consequences of your sin. So how is this person gonna respond? I mean, I think about myself. If I was like laid out in a hospital bed and I hear these enemies, look, look, how, look how they're described. They speak of my hurt, in verse 12, and then it says, and meditate treachery all day long. When we think about meditate, we think about sort of being quiet, like maybe like, home, um, you know? Like, med- meditate here, the, the word means to murmur or to mutter, to speak continually. And so the person's like lying there in bed, has hardly any strength, and they can hear their enemies whispering outside in the hospital hallway, this is how we're gonna bring him down, and this is what we're gonna do, and he, he's, he's finally gonna get what he deserves. And they're, they're, they're chirping, and they're talking, and they're planning, and they're plotting. Now, if that were me, if that were me, you can bet that I'd be trying to get up out of that hospital bed as quickly as I could, and get around the corner of that hallway, and give them a piece of my mind, and set the record straight. You can bet that I would try to defend myself in that moment. That's why what happens next is so shocking. Verse 13, I'm like a deaf man, I do not hear. Like a mute man who does not open his mouth. He's, he's ignoring what they're saying. They're speaking lies. They're laying traps for him. They're trying to destroy him. He says, I, it's like I'm deaf. I can't even hear it. I don't have ears for that. And I'm not, not going to speak out. I'm like a mute man. And then verse 14, I have become like a man who does not hear and whose mouth are no Rebukes. Well, why, why doesn't he defend himself? The answer is in verse 15. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. Now, the experience of the psalmist in Psalm 38 is pretty unique. Sin, sickness, and enemies coming after you. I really hope that that's not happening to anyone here right now. If it is, we need to pray for you. But chances are, at least one of those three things is happening. You either are, are sick or you're struggling with the guilt of sin or you have enemies who are really out to get you. I want to speak specifically right now. If you have a difficult person in your life who is trying to bring you down, who is talking behind your back, there's principles here in Psalm 38 that are important for us to understand. It's the principle of silence and the principle of patience. Silence. He says, I'm like a mute man. I'm not going to open my mouth. To not be so quick to defend ourselves. Why? Because you're waiting for God to defend you. And listen, you got to work with God's timeline, not yours. He says, I wait. Do you see that there in verse, 12, verse 15? For you, O Lord, I do wait. And so when you feel the need to, to share your side of the story, or set the record straight, or, or, or give a comeback to someone who's attacking you, remember Psalm 38. Silence and patience. Not just because silence in and of itself is good, not just because patience is a a good character quality to have, because you are being silent because you're trusting that God will speak. And you are being patient because you know that God will come through. And that's what the psalmist knew. And so rather than talking to his enemies, he talks to God. Verse 16, for I said, only let them not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips for i am ready to fall and my pain is ever before me so the psalmist is going through this painful experience physically and now relationally his friends aren't there for him his enemies are attacking all of these things all of these are a means by which god is seeking to draw the psalmist to himself using good guilt to guide the psalmist to God. And here's what will ultimately happen. If you allow guilt to take its natural course, if you respond to what God is doing, then you will ultimately see this, not just affliction in your soul and body, not just tension in your relationship, you will also see salvation from our God. You'll also see salvation from our God. The turning point, verse 18. I confess my iniquity and I am sorry for my sin. He brings it before the Lord. He confesses that he has sinned. He knows, as he acknowledged right from the very beginning, that this this suffering is a result of his sin. Then in verse 19 it says, but my foes are vigorous and they are mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after Good. Now, this might mean, I mean, is this guy out of touch with reality here? Why is he saying that he does good now? He just acknowledged that he had sinned. Well, here's what's going on. Is he, yeah, he, he admitted that he had sinned. He confessed it. He has repented. So he did do something wrong, but now he's trying to do the right thing. He's trying to change his ways, but these enemies are saying, no, you're still the same person, and we don't trust you, and, and, and this isn't going to happen, and, and we're going to get in your way. So now this person is trying to do what's right and yet there's still opposition. We need to be ready for that. That in walking with repentance, listen, if you've been sinning and people have been standing aloof from you, sinning with things like anger or lust or lying or deception or greed, listen, your heart might be changed and you might experience the forgiveness of God but remember, they need to change too. And so practice the same principle, silence and patience. They'll they'll see from your life as you continue to walk into repentance. Don't try to argue with them about how you've changed, especially if you've been sinning with anger, because you're going to get angry with them. But just be trusting the Lord and trusting that as he's been working in your life to forgive you, he's going to work in their lives to restore you as well. So the psalmist now is trying to do good Then he sums up his prayer in verses 21 and 22. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord of my salvation. He uses three different names for God in these last two verses. O Lord in verse 21 is in all capitals. That's Yahweh, that's God's covenant name when he revealed himself at the burning bush to Moses. And then, oh, my God, that's the word uh, Elohim. That's the generic term for gods in general. But he says, you are my God. All those other gods are false gods. I believe in you, God. And then the last one, oh, Lord. Notice how it's not in all capitals. That's the Hebrew word Adonai. That means master, that he is the master of his salvation. Oh, Lord of my salvation. He's trusting that God is in complete control that he is the master, that he's sovereign. He's sovereign over the circumstances he finds himself in. He's sovereign over his sinful choices. He's sovereign over his suffering and his sickness. He's even sovereign over those enemies that are trying to plot his ruin and his disaster. He's the master of his salvation. And he asks, make haste to help me. And God has, in fact, made haste to help us. This prayer in Psalm 38 was ultimately answered. This was a psalm of David, and this psalm of David points us to the son of David. Jesus Christ is the ultimate answer to this psalm. He is the ultimate solution to our guilt. Good guilt guides us to God, and good guilt guides us to the cross of Jesus Christ. The request in verse 1 says, Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. The only way that that could be answered, how can God's anger and wrath be satisfied? It was satisfied when Jesus suffered and died on the cross for our sin. And Jesus entered into our guilt, although he never sinned. This, this psalmist is suffering, and he's suffering because he knows he sinned. But Jesus never Sinned, and yet he fully identified with us in our guilt. Our iniquities went over our head. Our heavy burden was carried by him. Think about how Jesus even entered into the experience of the psalmist. Psalm 38 verse 11 says, My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and, near, and my nearest of kin stand far off. Remember Jesus On the night that he was betrayed, it says, they all left him and fled. Jesus knew what it was. As he was taking on our guilt for our sin, he knew what it was to have other people stand aloof to those who were supposed to be near to be far off. Psalm 38, 13, and 14, when the psalmist does this incredible thing and not talking back to his accusers, But I'm like a deaf man, I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth there are no rebukes. How could anyone do that? Has anyone ever really done that perfectly? Well, Jesus did. Jesus, it's described in 1 Peter 2, 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And then the the psalm ends by saying, do not forsake me, O Lord, in verse 21. Do not forsake me, O Lord, my God. Be not far from me. And this is where it's different. The psalmist, like us, cries out, don't forsake me, God, because of my sin. But Jesus on the cross cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, Jesus was forsaken so that we could be forgiven. Jesus took our guilt on himself so that the burden of our guilt could be lifted up off of us. This is the message of the cross of Jesus Christ. This is how God has dealt with this universal issue of guilt in the way that it affects us, affects our bodies, our relationships, all of these things. God uses good guilt to guide us to himself. And so as we close our service today, we're going to remember how God dealt with our guilt. We're going to remember how Christ was forsaken so that we could be forgiven. We're going to share in the Lord's Supper uh, together. And so let's bow our heads and pray as we uh, prepare for that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning and this opportunity to praise you and to worship you. God, we pray that you would be with us right now. I pray especially with those people who are suffering under a burden of guilt and who are struggling with the weight of the consequences of their sin, God. I pray that that they would draw near to you and that you would draw near to them. I I pray that as we take these symbols, these tangible reminders of what Jesus did for us, I pray that you would be with us, Lord, in a powerful way, that you would comfort those who are struggling, that you would convict those who are hard-hearted. Use this time, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.